You would think after all these years that I would have a, a box full of sermon notes in the garage. Actually, I do. But I have found over the years that when I do speak, it, it just means so much to me that it's new and fresh and uh, it, it hits me again and again and again. So I have, uh, I, I save the word studies, uh, I save the geography, the timeline, the, the specific wording, because that doesn't change. But the application changes and how we apply it, whether we're in a small group or individual Christian or, or a church setting such as this, I think it matters. And so uh, my uh, words to you today come from Matthew chapter 6, what we call the Lord's Prayer. And it, it really comes from um, the small group that Connie and I lead during the week. Uh, we, we just love our small group enormously. Um, they're largely, uh, do not have a church home yet. And we just uh, have fallen in love over the years with them. Our small group, the kids have grown up to the point where they're part of the small group now. So our small group, believe it or not, encompasses the ages of 9 to 73. Yeah. And the kids don't go to Sunday school, so part of our Bible study time is uh, hopefully something at their level, but there's also something for their parents. Um, The youngest one falls asleep almost every week, and you know what? That's just fine, because he gets up in the morning at 6.30, goes to school all day, he plays hard, and he's there for part of the Bible study, and then he falls asleep, and we don't care. And occasionally the dog walks across the room and finds a better place to to sleep for the evening, and we don't care. Because I think it takes us back to the early church, right? To that day when there was a teacher, a home, and some growing Christians. And that's how the church actually started. Um, And so it was meeting in homes. So so anyway, we have a great from our small group about three weeks ago on Matthew 6. And, and I want to read to you, and uh, I'll need to find it here. I want to read to you the, the context um, of prayer. Now, we tend to call it the Lord's Prayer. You know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Um, it's really the disciples' prayer. Right, I mean, he gave it pattern for prayer. And, but I want to read the context to you first of all. The context is in verses 5 uh, through 8. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Uh, So the first part of prayer is we're to pray to God, right? We're not praying to the people around us. I think that's one of the reasons why uh, many Christians are afraid to pray out loud. It's not that they're afraid to pray. It's they're afraid of what people might think of their prayer. And Jesus said, that's the wrong attitude, right? We're talking to the Father up above. 
Then he goes on in the next verse and says, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And so prayer is fundamentally uh, a private matter. Now there's nothing wrong with having corporate prayer. We've had it, and we'll have it again, I'm sure, I hope, right? But, but the context here is about how should I pray? And, and so the, the context here is when we pray, we pray privately. And secondly, we're to pray in a very simple way. Jesus said, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. So our prayers to be simple, right? It, it's not a complex issue. It's a very simple thing from my heart to God's heart. Now, verse 8 brings us right to the brink of a great mystery, I think, right? It says, do not be like them, for your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask him. And, and here's the dilemma. Here's the mystery, I think, of prayer. My Father knows what I need, but I am to ask for what I need. And how do you kind of put those two together? And if you have a scientific background, like I do, um, those two don't seem to sometimes fit. Right? I, I have a master's degree from the School of Mines. Um, I was going to be a geologist. I had my life laid out for me. Uh, it's just that God had other plans, and I was fine. But this particular verse has been, a, to me, a great mystery. Why, why should I pray to God my Father for what I need when He already knows what I need? And, and this is the subject of a whole other sermon probably in, in, in another time, um, but I'm going to just jump to the chase here. The bottom line is prayer is about our relationship to our Father who is in heaven. Prayer is about relationship. And it's not about giving, and it's not just about receiving. It has everything to do with Him and me. So there's a sermon in a nutshell right there. But it goes on to say um, the prayer that we are familiar with, right? And you memorize this prayer and you memorize it in probably a little different wording. And it's a different wording in Matthew and slightly different wording in Luke. Uh, I think the Lord must have given this uh, teaching a number of different times. And uh, your translation, I memorized it in the kind of the King James translation years ago. And so yours will be a little bit different, but let me read it to you. It says, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And would you join me in reading those words? I, they should be on the screen there now for you. Um, join me, and, and we're, we're going to join 2,000 years of Christians who have prayed this prayer. And they, many times they have actually prayed these words. And so would you read with me? This then is how you pray. Our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive, have, excuse me, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so we're gonna break that prayer down into its component parts. First of all, we pray uh, this way, right? He doesn't, Jesus doesn't say, this is what you should pray, meaning that you follow these exact words. He's explaining how you pray, meaning this is a pattern, this is a blueprint for prayer. And so we join disciples from long ago in praying this prayer, which probably should be now known as the disciples' prayer, because it is a pattern. And so it begins with our Father in heaven, We are so used to it. Um, We have said it so many times. We have read it many, many times that we're so comfortable with it that that I think the simplicity of it, our Father in heaven, four words, goes way out beyond us. Um, Names matter. Right? We, we just sang a beautiful new song about God's names, right? Name after name after name. And I probably should have counted them, but I didn't. There was 20 names maybe, or 30 of his names that we are all familiar with. Names matter. Names are really important. And names are not just a designator, right? They distinguish me from all Paul J. Holmes's in the world. I was sitting in my office one time in, in Alaska and I, I opened it up, a letter from the 8th Judicial Court of Alaska. Well, that kind of gets your attention, you know? And so it was to Paul J. Holmes. And I opened it up, well, it was kind of bad news, good news, I guess. The good news was the suit against me had been dropped. The bad news was it was a child custody case. <laughs> and so I read the letter very carefully then and eventually figured out that it was written to Paul James Holmes. It was not me, it was some fellow down on the Kenai Peninsula and apparently a child custody case against him had been dropped. Names matter, right? Your name matters. Your name is very important to you. Um, And Names in the ancient Near East were extremely important. Um, uh, let me read you uh, my, what, from one of my favorite New Testament authors. I, just, I love him. His name's Ken Bailey. He was a missionary in the Middle East for many, 50 years, I think. Um, beautiful expositor of the scriptures. And he quotes uh, an example from... Uh, one of the Caesars, whose name was Galeas, he's not one of the Caesars that we know as well, but when you spoke him, when you appeared in his court, and you spoke to him, or even better yet, when you prayed to him, because by the time of Galeas, uh, emperor worship had been installed in the Roman Empire. Um, this is an aside, but 
uh, Christians were mostly persecuted because they were not politically correct, right? The Romans didn't care what gods you worshiped, but you also had to worship the emperor. And Christians wouldn't do that. And therefore they were persecuted. Anyway, um, so when you went to pray to Galeas, or you appeared in his court to speak to him, here's what you said. Here are his names. And I quote, the Emperor Caesar, Galeas, Valerius, Maximus, Invictus, Augustus, Pontific, Pontifex Maximus, Germanicus Maximus, Egypticus Maximus, Phoebus Maximus, Sarmenicus Maximus, he said that one five times, Persis Maximus, you only had to say that twice, Carpicius Massius, you said that six times, Arminius Maximus, Medius Maximus, Abenicus Maximus, holder of the tribunal authority for the 20th time, emperor for the 19th time, counsel for the 8th, and Preter Pretoria Proconsul. Now, did you get that? That's how you addressed the emperor. That's what you had to say. Uh, Bailey goes on and makes the, the observation that this is how the emperor was addressed. It's how he expected to be treated. All of that to say, how did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father in heaven. Do you, does that resonate with you at all? The simplicity of that? The, the beauty, the the majesty of our Father in heaven. Now, our Father comes from the Aramaic, Abba. It's probably the second word that a child would learn because I'm assuming the first word was Mama, right? But the second word was Daddy. Abba means Father. It's a, it's a, a term of endearment, of love, it pictures a little child sitting in dad's lap, dad's safe and secure arms wrapped around this little one, and the little one looks him in the eye and calls him Abba, Father. Isn't that beautiful? That is how we are begin, we begin to pray, our Father. Now, I so much appreciate last week's sermon from Pastor Sam where he made the um, the clear observation that many of us need to distinguish between our earthly father and our heavenly father, right? Our earthly fathers um, may have hurt us, may have abused us, may have sinned against us in a variety of ways, and, and that we need to learn to distinguish our heavenly father. I, I appreciate Con, my, my wife Connie. Uh, her dad was mean. And... Um, and Connie has had to relearn over the years from the scriptures who God is and what he is like. And isn't that a special thing? And so our Father in heaven balances these two seemingly opposites, right? His imminence, his closeness, his tenderness, his love with his transcendence his majesty, his otherness, his godliness. And we hold those two truths equally dear in our heart. 
It is the one who is close to us, yet we pray to the one who is in heaven. And we sang earlier, just a little bit ago, about the one who is the beginning and the end, the I am, the, the, the one who knows, the one who gives, the one who is powerful. And so we hold those two in balance, but those two are taught in Scripture. And so we have a, I think we, we start off with this prayer is just, it's so simple. And if, if nothing else, I mean, if Jesus stopped teaching right there, right? Our Father in heaven, he's probably said almost as much about prayer as we need to know, right? We need to balance those two, but we hold them together because we pray to our Father who is in heaven. I would translate it this way, my daddy in heaven. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that majestic? Well, it goes on to say, uh, his prayer in verse nine, and the, the latter part is, hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed's not a word we use much anymore. In fact, I tried to think of the last time it was used in normal conversation, and I couldn't think of any. Right? I mean, my, my brother Scott and I go deer hunting together and we see a buck out there and Scott does not say, wow, that is a hallowed buck. Right? We don't speak like that. We don't talk like that. So number one, we, we don't use that word in our language. And for the most part, we don't know what it means. What it simply means is to make holy. So what he is saying is we're to pray, Lord, Please make your name holy, your reputation holy. All that you stand for, your character is holy and majestic and powerful and glorious. Uh, And you might ask, well, but isn't his name already holy, right? Didn't we see back in Isaiah chapter 6 when this wonderful prophet appeared before the Lord and he saw the, the, the high and lifted up? And they spoke of him who is holy, holy, holy. Exceeding superlatives, right? That's the only way that they could say he is the holiest. So isn't God already holy? The answer is, of course he is. But we are to pray that his his holiness, his majesty, that his name is known throughout the world and is known in a positive way. In the simplest of ways, this says we're not to use his name in vain. We're not to use it as a cuss word. But that's that's not what it's saying. It's saying so much more than that. That his name is to be hallowed. We're to make it holy. And how do we do that? Well, I think first of all, we do it by being holy. Right? When, when Christians live out the holiness of God, the majesty of God, the perfection of God, God is honored in that. His name, his reputation, his character is made more holy. And sometimes I just wish I didn't li- listen to the news or, or look online and find that here's another pastor of another church. Uh, here's another well-known Christian who's crashed and burned. And God is not holied by that. 
But he is holy and we live according to his holiness. And I also think wrapped up in his holiness is we want his holiness to be worldwide. We want his name to be worldwide. I think kind of hidden in there is the idea of evangelism, right? When I teach somebody else or you teach somebody else about the holiness of God, and you share with them that Jesus Christ is our Savior. He has forgiven us for our sins. His death on the cross was sufficient for that. My goodness, you are spreading His name is made more holy as you share Christ the Savior. And I think sort of incipient in this, at least in its embryo, is the idea of evangelism around the world. It's about missions. Right? Don't we want his reputation around this whole world to be known for who he is and what he has done? Lord, hallowed be your name. And then we come to verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You can either break that into two parts your kingdom come, and then the second part would be your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, or you can break it into three parts. Kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For me, I broke it into three. You may just break it into two. Your kingdom come, when we pray that, aren't we joining the Old Testament prophets in prayer in their explanation of of this coming king this Messiah, these, these wonderful prophets who have given specific prophecies about the coming Messiah. Oh, we join in the Old Testament. We, there's part of this prayer has to do, I think, in the past. And then the prayer is about the present, right? It is about Jesus. It is he presented himself as the king of not just Israel, but of people. In in our study on on our small group from the Gospel of Luke, we do about a chapter a week. I have been impressed over and over of how often Jesus presented himself to the people as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Right? He presented himself to them, to the people, his signs, his wonders, his miracles, his teaching, all of which were authoritative. They all they all. They were all grounded in his authority over the world. And Jesus is our king. And then when we pray, your kingdom come, we're praying that the Lord is yet to come, right? He came once, the first time. He died on a cross. He rose again. Someday he's coming again, right? For us. And he's going to usher in a period of unparalleled peace and prosperity. I think it's called the millennium. And and so there's all these Old Testament promises yet to be fulfilled. And the day is coming when we're going to say, there he is. No more, I wish I could see Jesus. You're going to say, there he is. He's in Jerusalem. He's reigning and ruling for a thousand years as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we're going to be able to see him as he is. 
So I think there's the past, excuse me, the past, there's the present, and we're praying for the future when we pray thy kingdom come. But then the second part, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I couldn't help but think of uh, Psalm 103 and verse 20, which reads, praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all this, his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. And they do his will. The good angels do his will completely. They do it immediately. They do it uh, obediently with joy. Right? That's who they are. And they enjoy fulfilling his will. Now, I wish I was the only one in this room that would be honest and say, yeah, but it's really hard to do his will. I may not be the only one in the room, but let's just assume for the moment that I am. I will tell you, it's very hard to do his will. Very hard indeed. And yeah, maybe you would join me in that understanding. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, this is what he said. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Deny themselves. By the way, he prayed that in the garden, thy will be done. Not my will, but thine be done. Um, and, um, and doing his will and taking up a cross, it's hard. It's hard. And I don't know who said it first, but I agree with them that most of us as Christians are just busy looking for a better cross. Right? We want one that's a little bit lighter, a little bit easier, a little bit simpler. In the bottom line, Jesus said, if you, you're going to follow me, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. We, we sang it just a moment ago, right? From that wonderful old hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And what? Tears to my eyes, because that describes me, <laughs> and it may describe you. It is hard to do His will. And so how should we pray? Number one, we should pray for ourselves, that we would do His will. We need to pray for each other, that other Christians would do His will. And we need to pray for our church, that we together would do His will. Our Father who is in heaven, your kingdom come. And then in verse 11, we have this simple um, phrase, give us this day our daily bread. And so we are to pray for today's needs. Now, I've I, I, I learned, not that I don't learn all the time, I learn all the time, but I, I learned something about this particular verse that I had not known before. Right? The word daily is a very unusual biblical word. And that's a little bit surprising, right? Because we're familiar with the word daily it means today, right now. The Greek word is epiousios, 
What's unusual about that particular word is it's not found in any other teaching by Jesus. It's not found anywhere in the New Testament. In other words, we can't turn to the, okay, well, let's see how the Apostle Paul uses it. We'll, we'll use it that way. No, can't find it there. Well, let's look at the Old Testament. We'll see how they used it. We'll use it that way. No, it's not there. In fact, this word occurs only in this scripture, this in Luke. And it's the only place in all of known literature that this word is used. Now I'm going to let that sink in for a minute. So our best guess is that it means daily or it may mean as needed. Um, it, it, it has the idea of immediacy, but for us, for now, let's use the word daily. We pray for our daily food. And I don't think there's any question but what Jesus was taking his disciples back to the day of the Exodus, right? After they left Egypt and, and God said, don't worry, I'm going to provide for you. Manna and quail. Manna comes from Hebrew. It's a Hebrew word. means manna. What is it? And I suspect the first few times they went out and they gathered up the stuff that they ate as bread, they went, well, manna, <laughs> what is it? Now, just for your amazement, you learned a little Aramaic, right? Abba. You learned a little bit of Greek, parousios, and you learned a little bit of Hebrew, manna. Man, you guys are really good. I'm, I'm impressed. Well, anyway, so I believe that Jesus was taking them back to the day of the Exodus. They went out each day, each morning, and they gathered their bread, the manna, and their quail, and that fed them for the day. And if they gathered extra, it turned sour. It was not, not carry, to be carried over. Except for on Friday, they got two times, right? They got Friday and the Sabbath. So they didn't work on the Sabbath. And so I believe that Jesus is taking them simply back to what is uh, one of the red letter um, experiences of Israel, which was God's care for them in the wilderness. And they prayed, Lord, today provide manna and quail. How are we to pray? Every day, Lord, provide our food. And so what he is saying here is we are to trust him every single day for the day's needs. The second thing he's saying is I'm to be thankful every day for his meeting of my needs. And I think we are also praying he alone is our only source. He's our resource. Now, I ad admit that this is, uh, you know, by and large, a problem, excuse me, for the first world, right? I mean, please don't raise your hand, but I would ask you, how many of you have prayed, Lord, give me today my daily bread, give me today's food, right? Most of us don't need to pray that prayer. We have freezers and refrigerators and pantries and canned goods. So what is the Lord reminding us of? 
He's certainly not against planning, right? Or else we'd cut out the book of Proverbs and throw it away, right? He's all for planning, but each day I am to pray, Lord, meet my needs for today. I have no guarantees for tomorrow. Meet my needs for today, and I am thankful for you, and I'm thankful for, for meeting my need and I believe that you are the great giver. That's how we pray. I think that's why we pray, or at least we have grown accustomed to praying at every meal. And in our world, it's easy to forget that God has simply promised us today. Right? We, we trust our careers, we trust our jobs, we trust our livelihoods. The bottom line is we trust the Lord. He alone is our giver. And he gives us every day what we need. And for that, we are to be thankful. And then, almost to the end, verse 12, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Now, your translation, in some places, excuse me, in some places it's translated debt, in some places it's translated as transgressions, in some places it's translated as sin. And, and I think those are all correct. They're all right, right? We are forgive, we ask for forgiveness for our debts, for our sins, for our transgressions, as and as we forgive others. Forgiveness in and of itself is an easy concept, right? It just literally means to, to send something into motion, to, to, to give it away, to throw it away. That's simple. I just happen to be of the opinion that it is a very, very difficult thing to do whether we're, as Christians, we're to forgive those around us. It's very hard to do. I have been hurt, or I have been abused, or I have been lied against, I have been slandered, I have been misused. Whatever the case may be, the natural thing is to hold it against them, to want vengeance. And the prayer in this case is, I forgive because I have been forgiven. I think this may be the hardest part of the Christian life to, to offer forgiveness, to give forgiveness for those who have hurt us. And I think it's equally hard sometimes for Christians to receive forgiveness for what we have been forgiven. I will never forget a, an army officer uh, um, came to me one time and, and kind of unloaded this litany of, of sins that he had committed over the, his life, and he wasn't sure if God would forgive them. If, and and I, I took him to the scriptures, and I assured him that God would and had forgiven him if he would accept him and, uh, you know, the Savior on the cross. And this man had done that. And I will never forget, he sat in my office and he had tears streaming down his face because he grasped the forgiveness that was his. So God forgives any sin, every sin, and so must I. 
And Ephesians 4.32 comes to mind, right? Be ye kind, compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ forgave you. Oh, how I wish it did not say just as. <laughs> right? There's a part of me that doesn't like those words. That means I am to forgive you just as Christ has forgiven me. Wow. We've entered a whole new realm here. Instead of vengeance, I offer forgiveness because I have been forgiven much. Let's look at the next to the last phrase. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Beautiful translation. And, and you might ask, well, but God doesn't lead us into temptation, does he? So why should we pray, lead us not into temptation? And I, I think it would make so much more sense if we would just simply say, lead us not into the way of temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. God doesn't deliver us to temptation. He doesn't lead us into temptation. He does not lead us into the way of temptation, right? I know what I'm, I'm, I'm my weaknesses. I know my vulnerabilities. You know yours. And isn't that where the enemy is going to attack? The answer is, of course. And so when I say, Lord, lead me in a better way. Don't lead me in the way of, trans, uh, of temptation. It's not that he leads me into temptation, but he leads me out of temptation. When I am in the way of temptation, I need him so much. And I believe it's very correct. The translation, deliver us from the evil one, has the article, right? Deliver us from the evil and it's a, another name, I believe, for Satan or for the adversary or for um, the, the devil. And God doesn't lead us into temptation. But temptation happens, right? I mean, the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every arena of life, just like we are. But he was without sin. So it's not a sin to be tempted. It's just a sin to sin, Right? And we're all subject to temptation. But the Bible also says, and I quote from 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, you will also provide a way so that you can endure it. So Lord, lead me not into the way of temptation deliver me from the evil one. Temptation is common and God will make a way of escape for his children. And finally, it ends with verse 14 and 15. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Now, again, we need to be real careful of the context here. Uh, he is talking to Christians. He's not, he is not talking to people who want to become Christians, right? So we get our lives cleaned up. We get all the things in order. And then we became Christians. 
He's already talking to people who have come face to face with the cross. And so the Lord is saying in, he, in this verse, it's, not, it's that we who have been forgiven much forgive others in the same way. And, and uh, it's interesting to me that kind of the Lord returns to that. It's, it's like forgiveness is, is almost number one on his list, right? I mean, why didn't he pick lying or stealing or cheating or anger or backbiting or why he picks forgiveness? And, and again, I just think it's because it's so hard to truly forgive and to truly be forgiven. And so what Jesus is simply saying in verse 14 and 15 is, when you pray, be sure that you have forgiven others. Because in that way, you can be sure that God has forgiven you. I think, I think this prayer is so simple in one hand. It's just, you could teach it to children, right? This prayer is so deep that you can spend a lifetime of study and still not plumb its depths. What a prayer. What a magnificent, beautiful, simple way of praying. And so I would like to pray for us as we close. Abba, Daddy, you who are is so close, you are so close to us. We pray to you because you care. But we remember at the same time that you are in heaven. That you see the end from the beginning. You know what our very best needs are. You know what, what should happen, what shouldn't happen. You are the God who is all powerful and all good. And we hold those in some balance, as hard as that may be that you're, you're really close to us. And at the same time, you're very different from us and very far from us. And we would like your name to be made holy around the world, that, that our lives would demonstrate your holiness, first of all, that the way we live, it, that it would matter, that, that people would look at us and somehow see you, and so we pray that, that your name would be first and foremost holy in our lives. And then we pray and for people all around us who need to know that your holiness could be extensive, be worldwide, that your name should be known around the world in, in missions. And we pray for your kingdom to come. We look forward to that day when you're going to come back and you're going to gather your kids together and, and we're going to enter into this period we call, I think, the millennium. This period of unparalleled peace and prosperity and, and joy and satisfaction and things are as it should be. And we finally have a ruler who is good, fundamentally good. And we pray that your will would be done in our lives. And today, right now, 
at 11.30 or whatever time it may be right now, this instant, that your will would be done. Would you please convict us if, if there's something in our lives that's unbecoming, that is unlike you, that you would make us aware of it so that we could jettison it quickly and that your will could be done. We want your will to be done on earth, right now, in us, as it is in heaven. That your will would, would be first and foremost on our minds, that would, we would be like the angels above. We would do it quickly and obediently and, and completely. And we thank you for our daily bread. We live in a world that wants so much to accumulate stuff and, and sometimes we forget that you are our only source. And so we thank you for our daily bread and for meeting our needs. In fact, for most of us, you've gone way above and beyond the meeting of our needs. And we thank you for that too. And we ask that you would help us to be thankful and appreciative and trustful. And Lord, um, we ask for forgiveness for our sins, which are many. Um, I may be the, uh, I guess I agree with the Apostle Paul that I'm the foremost of sinners. And, and I don't speak for anybody else. I would say simply for me, please forgive me again and again and again. And I would pray that for all of us. And I would pray that we would forgive people the way we've been forgiven and that that would be more than enough, and that we would find joy in that forgiveness. And so, Father, thank you for this simple prayer. And I don't think you intended us to pray these words, but you you intended us to pray like this. And so help us to have a lifestyle of prayer and trust, and one that brings honor and glory to you. For we pray in the name which is very, very special to us, in the name of Jesus, our Savior, who died on a cross for our sins. Amen.